You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what is top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we're speaking about historical approaches to cybersecurity design and the signs that it actually is time for a change. Today, I'm joined by cybersecurity veteran and icon, Rick Howard. Rick is the CSO and Chief Analyst for CyberWire and oversees the company's risk management and security strategies. He also teaches cybersecurity at Carnegie Mellon University. Rick was the first commander for the Army's computer emergency response team, the team we know as CERT. And after the military, he also served as the CSO at Palo Alto Networks, where he launched and led Unit 42, Palo Alto's threat intelligence team. Whilst also serving as one of the company's public faces, providing thought leadership throughout the cybersecurity community. Rick, welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea. And I'm just glad I'm known as an icon. I've never been called that before, so thanks for doing that for me. <laughs> you know, Rick, uh, you are. But, you know, I feel like I've turned the tables a little because I've been on your CyberWire podcast. Yeah, um, you know, at the CyberWire, we have this thing called a virtual hash table, right? And we invite really smart people like yourself, right, to come on and pontificate on the issues that affect security uh, executives today. And you've come on our quarterly analyst call to talk about the biggest news items, and you've been on my show, the CSO Perspectives uh, podcast, to talk about supply chain issues. So, yes, indeed, you have turned the tables on me. I am now on your show. Yeah, so I think what we'll talk about today, because it's incredibly timely, is, you know, we had the Nobelium attacks, we had Colonial Pipeline, we had the beef producer attacks, all those have happened within the past six months. And it's a new face of, you know, malicious cyber activity from nation state, but also cyber criminals really kind of amping their game. So what is top of mind as you talk to CISOs throughout the community when they talk about the future, when they think about how they're going to prepare themselves for more emerging threats? Yeah, I get to talk to a lot of CISOs in this job. And in my previous job, I got to talk to a lot of them also. And, and you do too, Anne, right? And one of my biggest pet peeves about our entire community is that we keep slowly and incrementally improving the situation, you know, over time. And you and I have been doing this for a long time. I've been doing it for over 20 years now. But we never stop to say, gee, I wonder if we're going in the right direction in the first place. So it got me thinking about this idea of first principles. What is the thing that we are trying to get done, right? When I'm trying to secure my organization, what exactly, if I'm going to go to my boss and say, hey, boss, this is what I'm trying to do. What is it I'm telling them that I'm getting done? I've got to melt it down to this basic thing reducing the probability of material impact to organization, say within the next couple of years. Now, a lot of people will argue against me on that, right? They'll say, well, we're, we're trying to stop all breaches, but all breaches seems really hard to do and it doesn't seem like that could ever get done. You know, it appears that we're not gonna be able to stop the breach. What we really wanna do is stop damage. You know, it's one thing for the bad guy to, to hack into the cafeteria website, you know, and change the menu items. It's another thing completely 
to steal your, you know, credentials, your cloud environments, right? So those have different meanings. And what we really want to do is, you know, reduce the probability of something big like that from happening. So that's what I've been talking to CISOs about. If you can say in a Twitter line, what's the very first principle that we're all trying to do? What do you think it is? You got any thoughts about that, Anne? Yeah, you know, I, I talk a lot, as you know, about operational resilience and cyber resilience. And the concept is, you know, we're all probably breached in some part of the organization, but how are you going to minimize the damage? And most importantly, how are you going to get your critical systems back online really quickly? And it's not even necessarily cyber principles. You know, I've been in cyber since the year 2000. Before that, I was in the storage business. And, you know, I know, you know, people back up. Everyone backs up, but very few companies stop to make sure they can test to recover from those backups. And they don't think yeah. about where the back backups actually are and the backups are in line and the backups become encrypted when there's a ransomware attack. We actually need to go back to some really core architecture and resilience principles also so that when you are attacked, you can recover really quickly and bring those business systems back online. Yeah, I was looking at the food uh, company, the JBS attack, right? Uh, I don't know who the CISO is over there, but they absolutely had a plan in practice you know they were offline for a couple of days but you know fully back on you know pretty quickly compared to other big events that we've seen and that's what we're talking about a resilience plan that allows them to keep uh, delivering their critical services to their customers i would also say though that resilience is a piece of it all right but if you're trying to reduce the probability of material impact there's other strategies that you might consider and, and although i know these sound like uh, you know buzzwords and marketing words but really zero trust would help a lot of us uh, recover from this. Uh, I was just thinking about the solar winds attacks that you mentioned. You know, the, the damage didn't come from the back door from the solar winds application. The damage came from when the bad guys got in through the back door and then were able to move laterally to steal credentials to get into cloud environments, right? What we should have prevented in our zero trust posture is an ability for a bad guy to move laterally and get up to something that's really important. So zero trust as a strategy should be there on the same level as resilience. There's two others, and let me throw them out there real quick, right? One is intrusion kill chain prevention, where zero trust is kind of passive. Kill chain prevention is actually deploying prevention controls for all the known adversaries out there. And the last one I'll just throw out there is our ability to forecast risk. We all as an industry really suck at this. I really need to improve that as an industry as we go forward. Yeah, I, I think all of that's important. I want to go back for a minute to zero trust because you talked about it. You know, one of the things, because I, I built the um, the Microsoft Protection Response Team here, which is our customer incident response team. And one of the things we always found was that customers had too much privilege, right? And they didn't have the right network segmentation and micro segmentation. And they weren't using multi-factor authentication. So all of those things, you know, the ability to recover and be resilient is one thing, but the ability to actually prevent lateral movement, as you said, and to prevent an attack from escalating requires you to be using things like secure admin workstations. It requires you to be have least privilege. It requires you to have the right network or micro segmentation. And it requires you to be using multi-factor authentication. And these aren't, you know, people, we, we love to talk in this industry. And hey, you know, Rick, I'm a vendor, right? We love to talk in this industry yeah. about. I used to she, be a vendor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we talk about a lot of stuff. Oh, buy my latest tools. This, but you know what? <laughs> 80% of breaches could be stopped in, from being a large event if people actually were doing better process things, not the latest tool thing. Well, I would, I would totally agree with that, right? And when and I talked to security leaders about just zero trust, for example, 
it all seems very daunting. Okay, you mentioned a bunch of things like you know segmentation and multi-factor authentication and blah. You know, it seems like oh my god, how am I going to get all that done? Especially if you're a small and medium-sized organization. The thing we want to remember is zero trust is a journey, not a destination. You're not going to get it all done in one day. But you could do some big things right now with equipment that you already have. You don't have to go out and buy another infrastructure. You can do some things right now with the stuff that you already have. So, uh, let's of this and let's just get busy implementing some of it. Well, exactly. And I think that's the other thing, right? We talked about multi-factor authentication. I'm going to throw this out there. We still see it almost at a global, you know, on a global basis, only about 20% implemented. That's yeah. a very big macro number. Obviously, it varies by region and, and segment and, and size of organization. But, you know, that's just, that's poor. And we've we've done it, you know, I'm passionate about the topic because I spent, you know, 14 years at RSA Security talking about tokens, right? We've done a lot to reduce the end user friction on multi-factor, but clearly we still have a ways to go. Yeah, you know, in my last job, uh, we embarked on a multi-factor authentication, um, you know, project. We had lots of resources, and it still took us a year to get it done, right? And, and it wasn't like we were doing it part-time. You know, we had a dedicated team to it. So it's still, it's a lot less frictionless, but it's still hard to get done in most enterprises. It is. Um, let's talk a little about the executive order. So the Biden administration has issued an executive order that came out of a lot of these events. I think Ann Newberger is doing some outstanding work also, by the way. It, it's been an interesting approach across, you know, if you look across many administrations, right, um, the focus now. But one of the things the executive order talks about is threat intelligence sharing and threat information sharing between the private and public sector. And I know you're familiar with the CTA and the ISACs and all of these other, you know, avenues we've had to try to share threats. What do you think is going to change and how can we effectively actually do threat intel sharing? Well, I think it's great that, you know, President Biden is getting behind some of this stuff. And I was just reading an article uh, this last week about this. President Biden is the first U.S. president who's ever stood up and talked about ransomware in a press conference. That's how far this has come, right, that it's got to get to that kind of level. So I'm really glad that he's behind this kind of thing, all right? Uh, but information sharing, as you know, and uh, it's been around, gee, since 1999. That's when all the ISACs were invented. We really haven't evolved to where it should be, right? Many of us are still sharing threat intelligence with our government partners through spreadsheets and email and PDFs. When they decide that they need to share threat intelligence to the community because it'll make everybody safer, that needs to be a push button. And it goes to everybody at once and not not to some website and not through some PDF. You mentioned the Cyber Threat Alliance. These are all security vendors who share threat intelligence with each other so that the customers don't have to do it themselves. All of those members of the Cyber Threat Alliance, I think there's like 32 now, they all have ways to automatically update their own products. Right. So I think automation is the key. I'm glad I'm bored with this, uh, but I think we all of us have some work to do here. Well, and I was talking to some CISOs recently, and one of their hesitations, and they're actually do they do share information with the government, but one of their hesitations, particularly with breach notification laws and, and sharing certain things, is they don't want to end up in the paper, right? They, if they don't have to publicly announce something and there's no consumer impact to it, they have some concern about sharing it with the government and having it leak. Any perspective on that or thoughts on that? <laughs> Yeah, I think we're, we've been arguing about this for 20 years. And the thing you have to remember is I don't care who it is that got breached. What you share is everything we know about the adversary across the intrusion kill chain, from delivery to compromise to command and control to lateral movement to exfiltration. None of that is, hey, you know, the cyberware got breached. None of it is. 
right? It's just what we've seen the adversary do, okay? That's what needs to be shared. Yeah, I was talking to our Mystic team last week as we were, um, we're we're kicking off this initiative to try to create, again, a security industry working group that normalizes and makes it easier to share information um, in the event of large events. Now, threshold TBD on what a large event is, but in talking to Mystic and talking to our Threat Intelligence Center, you know, one of the things that they said to me is they said, you know, Ann, IOCs are fine. But really, the techniques that the actor is using is what we need. We, you know, we we see the IOCs, we get the IOCs. Look, that's great. We need to understand what they're doing today. And I think back to Nobelium and just some of the unique techniques the actors use. Things like, you know, creating unique IP addresses, not just for every entity they attacked, but for within the entities. Um, they bought domains that were not quite expired. They they used third-party credentials that people had stopped monitoring, you know, that somebody had set up in an AD long ago, dormant accounts. There were things they did that would have been really helpful for everyone to understand early on, and that's what they were pointing to. If we're going to get to the point of sharing information, there's also some information that's more important than others, and how do we meaningfully share that and quickly into your point how do we share it in a more automated fashion well i totally agree that the cyber threat alliance has this idea of an adversary playbook right and i know everybody has a playbook in their you know marketing terms but when you in terms of adversaries there's a couple things you want to point out right first and foremost we want to realize that there are people behind these attacks they're in there but also all the techniques and tactics you know that we find from the minor attack framework they're also in there too so the way to uh, automatically share that is through sticks. The the sticks standard is the way to do this. It's a huge uh, way to do things. And what the Cyber Threat Alliance has done is reduce the number of things you represent in sticks to a very finite set that's easily um, programmable. So we, I encourage all security vendors to join the Cyber Threat Alliance and get on board with sharing adversary playbooks in real time. Yeah, and I think that that, that adversary playbook, and I, I, I get that there's a lot of marketing buzz around playbooks, but at the end of the day, you just said something, even human-operated ransomware, right? These are sophisticated yeah. humans who are doing reconnaissance for periods of time, and they're buying, and they're potentially buying access or gaining access. They, it, this is not just, you know, malware. As a matter of fact, if you look back to the pandemic last year, we didn't see the ransomware groups creating new versions of malware. They just understood social engineering and were using COVID-based lures, right, to get people to click on the malware, to click on the links and, and, and get the exploit. And that's what I think we need to focus a lot more on, not just the human offenders, but also the human defenders. Can you talk a little bit, because you've done this for so long, about how we keep the human defenders from being burned out and how what we can do to help them for, in their jobs? And yeah, you and I have noticed this problem over time. You, know, you get somebody in a sock for more than a couple of years, they start to walk around like a you know a white walker from the Game of Thrones. There's so much work they have to do. And, and that's another thing. Another here's a third pet peeve of mine. You know, we really haven't evolved the uh, SOC, the Security Operations Center, um, since it was invented back in the you know the late 90s. Uh, they all basically do the same thing. There are three tiers of analysts. The first tier are the newbies and they kind of swipe right, swipe left, depending on the alert they see. And they're trying desperately to find something that's important. And then if they can't figure it out, they move it up to tier two. And those guys do a smaller version of that. And eventually we get it to the tier three. These are the two or three folks in the, that every organization has who know where all the skeletons are buried and know how to handle everything. So secret automation again. All right, automating, okay, the tier one and two, tier two tasks. So we don't need humans at the keyboard doing mindless, brainless things. 
what we really want them to do is, you know, get on a red team or get on a blue team or, or be on the end team and, and figure out how to automate the other things that we need to automate. So I think that's the first, that's what I would do first if I was moving into a new organization is to automate those tier one and tier two tasks so we don't burn those people out as fast as we have been over the last decade or so. Yeah, and I, I agree. And that automation piece, and there is a role for machine learning, right, to understand what the most critical alerts are going to be that are actually, hopefully, you can surface the top alerts that do, and the hardest jobs to the humans. So they're doing complex work, and you're automating a lot of that low-level noise below them and, and removing stuff that just isn't real, right? Yeah, we, you know, the technology that's hit the sock is these things called, it's called SOAR, and it's basically a way to automate the alerts. And uh, it turns out that we know, you know, the, the tier one analyst, he does the same thing most of the time, all day long. So if it's a repeatable task, that could be automated. And uh, we implemented SOAR in my last uh, gig at Palo Alto Networks, right? And we went, and I forget what the total numbers were, but you know, about a billion alerts that came into the SOC every quarter, you know, that humans had to deal with, right? We got that just using the SOAR technology. You know, a minor form of automation, we were able to get that down to 500 things that humans had to look at in 90 days. That is much more manageable. That's a that's a better job for everybody in the SOC. So let me um, ask you the hardest question, right? I spent the past couple of years working on quantum brace cryptography and, <laughs> ad yeah, and, and adversarial machine learning and things that I think are future threats. What do you really think the future threats are that we need, you know, be super pragmatic, right? Not the pie in the sky stuff, but what is it we need to be worried about in the next couple of years in cyber? Oh, in cyber. Um, I, again, I'm going to go back to uh, uh, it seems to be our inability to adopt the DevSecOps model. When five years ago, when DevSecOps, you know, sort of hit the, you know, hit the marketing boards of all the security companies, I really believe that uh, we would have automated most of the things by now. But for some reason, all right, for some reason, the security people are still in their own stovepipe, and the IT people are in their own stovepipe. The IT folks are well ahead of us. Okay, in terms of DevOps, if you look at some of the big infrastructure companies like Microsoft, like Google, like Netflix, you know, those guys are automating their entire infrastructure. But most security organizations have not automated much, right? And so the, the big problem that we have to solve, I think, is how do we automate some of all of our tasks, our security infrastructure tasks, right? So that then we can use our human brain power to really think about how to defeat the adversary in the future. Have you seen that too, and or, or do, you, do you know why people are not want, trying to embrace this DevSecOps kind of model? It's hard. <laughs> it went it's in the hard. hard to, I know. It went in the hard to do stuff. <laughs> it went in the, we have so much going on right now. DevSecOps, we don't even understand Dev. Right. You, you yeah, look, yeah. I, I love security people. I am one. But a lot of them came up on either the network or policy side. You know that they're not devs by nature. Right. So you have a lot of security leadership saying we don't understand dev. No yeah. dev, Right. Well, I used to think that, too, you know, when this all got started, you know, I, uh, I first got turned on to DevOps, you know, through Gene, uh, the Phoenix Project. And I said, oh, my God, that's the answer for all of us. We just could automate all this stuff. And I was telling everybody for uh, many years that in, in the near future, security people are going to be developers first and security people second, you know, because we all have to code everything. 
That is absolutely not what's happened. I was completely wrong about that. We are, because it's hard being a program where it's not, it's not something you learn on the side. Okay, you kind of you kind of have to have a, a flavor for it in your own soul. <laughs> yeah, and I do think that DevSecOps has to be more. We we actually have to prioritize it. And I think that you, you said it. You know, when you meet with CISOs, they have so much going on right now. I mean, it really, and they don't want to be the next company that's ransomed, right? So DevSecOps is just this, yes, great remote, this opaque concept that's going to help us down the road, but how are they going to operationalize it today? I think it is, you know, I go back to the vendor comment, we need to make it easier, right? The vendors have to figure out a way to make that thing a lot easier. I think there's two problems that we could work on right now as security executives. Right? The first one is to build a framework inside your SOC that you can touch all the tools you have in your security stack without having to, you know, remotely log in and you know, or use the console that the vendor gave you. You should be able to automate that entire process. And the reason I say that, right, is just, let's say that Panda Bear uh, rolls out a new adversary campaign. Okay, what we've learned in the past is they don't completely rejigger a new campaign. They might change one or two things in the attack sequence. So what we want to be able to do is quickly put the new thing into all of our security tools wherever they are. We want to be able to just say, here's the thing we're going to do to prevent this new thing from Panda Bear. Push a button, and it just gets distributed to all the security stack. Okay, that's a really small problem to think about, but if you could just have that ability, that'd be closer to, the, uh, to getting this done. Yeah, I agree. So we always like to leave our audience with a couple pragmatic things. You mentioned them earlier, but what what are your top two to three pieces of advice for anyone who's listening today? Uh, don't worry. It's a journey. That's the first thing I'm going to say. We said that for zero trust. Okay. I would absolutely focus on zero trust uh, as, a, uh, as a first step because you have equipment already that can do that. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of technologies that I'd like you to think about. Right. The first one is software-defined perimeter. Right. Software-defined perimeter goes hand-in-hand hand with zero trust. It's this idea that why would you expect your employees, when they're trying to get to a workload, to have to go to that workload and log in? Because now you're right next to the workload. Wouldn't it be better if you put all of that authentication and authorization outside where the workloads are Make sure the person is authorized and then let that software establish the connection to the workload they need access to and not to everything else like a VPN does. The second one I have people looking at is SASE, Secure Access Service Edge. Um, it's just now forming, but it completely flips how we've been doing security in the past, you know, 10 years or so, past 20 years. And then you as the customer, all you do is set the policy. I want to have this zero trust policy. I want to have this intrusion kill chain policy. It takes the complexity out of your environment. It does the shared responsibility model that we do with all cloud providers now, right? And it lets you focus on the things that are important and not maintaining infrastructure. We focus a lot, and I talk a lot about multi-factor authentication. We're not focusing enough on authorization. And we, we absolutely need to focus on authorization. Mm -hmm. What Once someone's in, what can they do? And that's back to that least privilege concept also. Well, Rick, thank you for joining us. I think this was a this was a great episode. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Thanks for inviting me on. I love coming on this show. Okay, we're going to do this on a regular basis now. You you come on my show, and I'll come on yours. How does that sound? That sounds great. As long as we can keep adding value to the ecosystem, I'm all for it. Thank you so much for joining me, and many thanks to our audience. Join us again on the next episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea.
So we wanted Rick to join the show because he's such an expert in the space. You know, he has experience in cybersecurity from his time in the military. He was the chief security officer and started the threat intel group at Palo Alto. And now he's with the CyberWire. And he's he thinks about pragmatically what's happening in the space today. But he's also thinking about the future in cybersecurity. And he spends a lot of time with chief information security officers and with, you know, um, industry experts and with vendors trying to understand. So I knew. Um, that it was going to be a great conversation and that it was going to be one of a, a really useful conversation for folks to take some advice from. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.